Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hello, it's Intern Takeover again this week with Jesse, um, and it's Morgan. Hi, everyone. And today we will be talking about some interesting local and global uh, concerns with food security and food justice and how that interacts with the environment. Um, exactly. And on this podcast this week, we have two very special guests. Both of them um, are from the area, which is exciting. We love having local guests on. Um, so first, we'll be interviewing Erica Satin-Hernandez, who works at Shape Up Somerville for the City of Somerville Government. Um, and then we'll be talking to one of our peers from Tufts University, Charlotte Mondale, and she'll be talking to us about her experience dealing with the food system on a global scale. So we're very excited for those two guests. Mm-hmm. Um, and with no further ado, um, we'll hear from Erica now. Hello, listeners. This is Morgan. And this is Jesse. And we are here speaking with Erica Satin-Hernandez, who is the coordinator of Shape Up Somerville for the city of Somerville. Um, so hi, Erica. How are you? Hi. Great. How about you guys? We're great. Um so our first question for you is, um, how did you get into food security work um, and what brought you to Summer City, Somerville City Government? Sure. Uh, so I went to Tufts, actually, Jumbos, uh, coming here from New York, and um, I studied community health and American studies, and that for me came together with a lot of my courses focusing on racial health disparities. Um, and health equity. And one of the really important determinants of our health is what we eat, but not just simply what's in our fridge and what's on our plate, but it's all about what is actually available in our community um, and all of the different barriers and benefits that can determine what kinds of either health-promoting or health-harming food that we have in our communities. And so that's something that really struck me as a huge aspect of our health and uh, I just decided to run with it. And so um, after Tufts, I was in AmeriCorps VISTA over at the Tisch College of, um, it was then called Citizenship and Public Service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after that, I came directly to Shape Up Somerville and they can't seem to get rid of me. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that's great. So on that topic, yeah, um, we were sort of wanting to ask yeah, about the interdisciplinary nature of Shape Up. So I know that it's nutrition-focused and also has something to do with physical education and movement and stuff. So what is sort of the mission of Shape Up, and how does it have different branches and different disciplines? Sure. So Shape Up Sunrill aims to build, sustain healthy communities here in our city, um, focusing on active living, safe, active communities, and um, healthy, equitable food access. And so our mission has changed um, a lot over time, but the basic notions of having a place of safe, healthy, active places to move around and uh, healthy, quality food to eat mm-hmm. uh, and working on kind of the systems and environment level have followed us throughout Shape Up's history. Um, What I mean when I say the systems and environment level is that we don't necessarily do, um, for example, exercise classes or physical activity programming. Um, Of course, there's always a time and place, and we'll always take part in something fun, but um, we don't usually plan that ourselves. Um, And there's only one instance in which we're actually making, selling healthy food, which is really cool. Um, But overall, we're trying to figure out how can we encourage these resources to be embedded in our community and that this is like it's just the way things are, that we have bike lanes and that we have Mm -hmm. active transit opportunities that Mm -hmm. kids and adults can take advantage of and it's just the way that Somerville is that we have um, healthy walkable food and um, all the Mm -hmm. culturally relevant items that you need that are health for a healthy Mm -hmm. diet, you know. Um, And want to make it such that the environment of Somerville and the system that we live in in Somerville has these things available. One thing about the interdisciplinary nature of the work at Shape Up that I think is so important is this principle of the social determinants of health. That um, what we actually 
do to take care of our bodies and going to the doctor, et cetera, um, in the physical sense is only one small part of what creates um, a state of health for us. And mm-hmm. that there are many, many, there's a whole network of factors across a community, a country, the world that influence our health. And in order to um, make an impact, we really have to work on them all. And that's not to say that Shape Up does everything under the sun, but um, we try and contribute what we can to this kind of working on this network of factors from housing to food access to safe roads, et cetera. That is so cool that you're considering this entire interdisciplinary perspective from also a systemic perspective. You know, it's like a bunch of different things all combined in one. So mm-hmm. hard work, but great work that you're doing here. <laughs> it's always exciting. There's always something cool happening. So. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So as you know, Ocean River Institute is an environmental nonprofit. So while we know you work more from the local citizen perspective, um, we were wondering what, in your opinion, some of Somerville's biggest or smallest, most important environmental <laughs> problems that you face or your people who you work with face on a day-to-day basis. Sure. Um, I mean, climate change is obviously something that we're all talking about, and if we're not, we should be talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of different ways that um, we at Shape Up interface with the issue of climate change as well as the larger health department. Um, and so in terms of shape up, um, we know that climate change will be impacting our farmers in our area. We know that it'll be changing the food we eat. Um, it's already actually impacting our local food availability. Um, we work with farmers at our mobile farmers market, which we'll mm-hmm. talk about a little bit later, I'm sure. Um, and the the heat and the increased rain and the um, the vacillation between drought and heavy rains has been impacting their crop planning so much that not mm-hmm. you know it's impacting their livelihoods of what they can sell and completely changing um, the availability of food at different times and this is just the beginning and so um, in the future it will be really important to understand how to mitigate the impact on um, of climate change on food security. And mm-hmm. the uh, Office of Sustainability and Environment here at the city is doing amazing work uh, to plan for this, as, you know, and also connecting with the um, sector in the Health and Human Services Department that works on public health emergency preparedness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what happens if there's a um, climate issue um, and we have a massive flood or some or excessive heat um, mm-hmm. yeah how do we make sure that our constituents are safe um, and have the resources that they need to, to mm-hmm. be safe and healthy uh, and so I think that is something that has definitely been on the forefront of um, the front of mind for a lot of municipal mm-hmm. offices um, and the OSE office of sustainability environment also just um, has completed a um, climate action plan, has been working off of that. And there's some really great recommendations in there. Definitely yeah, thank you for that. Sure. Um, so, um, as, as we said, as you know, um, we, uh, we're in a water-focused environmental nonprofit. Um, so, we know that uh, Shape Up does work with safe tap water access in Somerville. Um, so, can you speak a little bit about safe water drinking, or safe drinking water in the Boston, greater Boston area, and also in Somerville in particular, related to shape up. Sure. Um, so Somerville and the greater Boston area have excellent tap water resources, um, which is great and something that we can't take for granted. So definitely appreciate that we have such a um, well-functioning system um, and our safe tap water access. Uh, there are, in Somerville, I can speak uh, to a couple of different places where we're checking on safe tap water quality. Um, and I can't take any credit for this um, because this is all the great work of other departments in the city um, where, you know, con- consistently checking on the quality of the original source water, the pipes mm-hmm. that transport water throughout the city, um, and then whatever systems are occurring in individual homes. Um 
And so the city's always working with MWRA to check on the quality of the water source. Um, they've mm-hmm. been constantly working on um, upgrading and cleaning pipes across the city that transport water. Um, mm-hmm. And so that usually means that the tap water that we have in Somerville should be safe to drink straight out of your tap. Um, if there are any issues within an individual home, um, those can be assessed and you can always uh, get a tap water testing kit online as well to send away to the lab. Um, but we love the, and we love to promote uh, tap water drinking because it's the healthiest, safest, and most affordable mm-hmm. choice um, right. of beverage. You know, the more water that we drink, the fewer sugar-sweetened beverages that we're having yeah. to buy, um, and the the better our health can be. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I'll say is that um, some of it also tests the water in schools, um, and so they are also working on making sure that our schools have uh, and our youth in during the school day have adequate tap water access as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that we can help interface with that at Shape Up is working with our schools to make sure that there are um, policies in the health and wellness policies for the system that uh, students are allowed to have water bottles in all their classrooms. Uh, mm-hmm. So that they have an That's alternative great. to yeah to Soda. buying sugar sweetened beverages oh. etc. Yeah, was that a was that a problem that it was prohibited for students to bring their own bottles to class or? It seems like um, in some places it occasionally was an issue. Um, but that's something we can tackle. And SODA is also, you know, an early shape-up initiative and with the schools, of course, was um, reducing any sugar-sweetened beverages. And the schools have have definitely had health on their mind um, mm-hmm. all the time and, you know, making sure that they have the best for their students. So SODA is not sold in any of the schools. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah. And while we touched upon this a little bit. You can have the same answer, but I was just curious what you think one of the um, one kind of important socio-environmental issue in Somerville that's happening right now. Maybe this kind of gets into food security or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, climate change, whatever you kind of are thinking about right now and what's kind of been on your mind in the community. Definitely. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't mention our um, food system assessment, and that's been something that was such an exciting process that definitely comes to the front of mind for me. Um, And I'll start with the background first, then I'll get into it. Um, But overall in Somerville, um, you may notice that we have a whole bunch of grocery stores around the city, which is great. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are still some accessibility issues uh, from actually traveling to those grocery stores um, transporting your groceries back home from the store um, and making sure, especially if you don't have a car, that can be extremely difficult. Um, and also making sure that the stores have the items that you want and need. Um, and so when we're thinking about physical access in terms of transportation, um, if you aren't driving a car, in which many Somerville residents do not own a car, um, are you able to get to your local grocery store easily? Um, Mm -hmm. Are you able to transport the bags home or do you have to then travel more often? Um, Mm -hmm. We're hearing reports that uh, sometimes they'll get on the bus with a whole bunch of grocery bags and the driver will say, you can only have two bags with you, like you can't get on the bus. Um, And so, you know, what happens then to your regular grocery shopping patterns and to your food access needs. Um, Especially if you're feeding a family, you know. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. So there are so many questions that we've been hearing around the community about uh, food access and healthy, equitable food access at that. And so we are, uh, we have just finished our food system assessment for the city of Somerville. You can see the report online at somervillema.gov slash food system. And this was uh, almost a two-year-long process where we did some focus groups, we did some mapping of resources using GIS, Mm -hmm. 
and um, assessment and surveying, a whole bunch of different mixed methods that we like to call it, um, to determine what are the food security needs in our community, what are the issues, um, and what are some of the resources that are that are being utilized and what can be utilized better. Um, and so that was a highlight of my work at Shape Up. It was so exciting mm-hmm. to be a part of this. Um, it's a fairly new option, I guess. You know, there have been a number of cities across the country that have done this, but um, this is new for Somerville. And then from there, we turned it into a food action plan, which is also available on our website. Great. And what, what is your website, just for those listening, if you want to sure. tune in? Yes, that will be www.somervillema.gov slash sus, as in Shape Up Somerville. Fantastic. Um, great. So on the topic of sort of, well, first of all, thank you. The food system assessment is absolutely incredible and something that it should be a model for other cities in Boston and uh, in, in the area. Um, but um, on the topic of mobility and access to food, um, would you speak, we've referenced it a little bit because it's just so exciting, um, the, the mobile market system in Somerville, how that's working, how it's going, um, your role in it, and how it's helping achieve some of the goals that you've laid forth. Yes. Thanks for mentioning that. I run the mobile market, uh, which is so exciting. Um, it started, we're going into our ninth season. I can hardly believe it. Um, but more than 10 years ago now, um, the star market in Winter Hill closed, and you've probably seen the building there empty. Um, and it's been like that for, for over a decade. Um, and residents in the Winter Hill area, which includes the, the community around our office as well as uh, the Mystic Housing Development um, up on the north side um, lost pretty much all the access for fresh produce um, and other types of um, walkable, healthy foods. And so um, we worked with different partners and evaluation entities to understand, you know, what would... Uh, community members in this area like to see to improve that healthy food access again. And a farmer's market um, was one I was the primary idea that the community identified. Um, but it's it's always tough because we, we have a bunch of farmers markets which are amazing. Um, but again, not necessarily in the neighborhood and uh, you don't want to overwhelm and burden farmers by having to come out to all these different farmers markets. Everyone wants to be on a Saturday, right? Um, yeah. And so we ended up going mobile. Um, and so, as I said, we're going into our ninth season. We park at four different sites. Um, we go on Friday mornings to the Council on Aging and the Tab Building over in Teal Square, uh, and then East Somerville Community School in the afternoon. And then on Saturdays, we go to North Street Housing and Mystic Housing. Mm-hmm. And our goal is just to sell healthy, fresh, local produce. Um, at really great prices. And so what, aside from obviously being out of a van, um, <laughs> what makes us really unique is our match program. Um, a lot of farmer's markets have 50% off up to $10 maybe or dollar for dollar match up to $10 if you're using your SNAP card. Um, but we wanted to take it a step further because there are so many people who either are not able to access SNAP or um, have other programs that are still experiencing food insecurity. And so we offer 50% unlimited discount if you have SNAP with wow. senior farmer's market coupons or Mass Health, which is new for this year, nice. um, or if you live in either any of the Somerville housing developments but don't qualify for those programs. And so we want to make it as expansive as possible and make sure that um, everyone can get a really great price on really great food. That was really yeah, great. fantastic. It's, it's sort of a really broad way to include all people on food assistance and people who require food assistance um, to let them get the fresh food that you're offering. It's fantastic. Um, so what's in season right now? Just out of curiosity, <laughs> what's, that, what's been recently? Great question. Um, so we're actually starting this weekend, so, um, which is we're super um, our, we have a little market website, which again, you can find on our Shape Up um, municipal website, but it's also Wave a Bitly, um, so it's bit.ly 
slash TSMFM, as in the Somerville Mobile Farmers Market. Um, and you can see our weekly stock. You can sign up for our newsletter, which has our stock list, etc., all sorts of other food resources around the city. But this week, I think we're going to have a lot of great greens um, mm-hmm. since it's still early on. Um, and I think that one of our highlights will be Callaloo, which is Amaranth Greens. Um, those are really popular with our Caribbean customers. Um, pretty much anybody, they're awesome. And I think that'll be our feature. And then in a couple weeks, we'll start to get our corn, get our peaches, and really get rolling. Fantastic. Amazing. Uh, so on, on the topic of sort of the mobile market and people being served by it, um, how does Shape Up Somerville, who is it serving in the community, um, and how is it so far achieving its food security goals, um, and either through the mobile market or through other programming that Shape Up is working on? Sure. Um, you know, as a municipal entity, obviously our goal is to serve all of the city of Somerville, um, but we are aware that um, there are lots of different levels of food security across our city. Um, there are some people who are food secure, which is awesome. And then we just want to, but we want to make sure that um, they have all the healthy food resources that they that they want as well to make sure that their diet is still healthy. Um, and then there are lots of people who are running the scale all the way down to very low food insecurity, or sorry, very very low food security. Um, you don't know where your next meal is coming from. You're not sure you know, what the quality will be, and you just as long as you can fill your belly right and um, mm-hmm. that is another constituency that we have to keep in mind and so it's kind of trying to create a broad array um, and uplift a, a broad array of resources that can help everyone no matter where they're at get what they need uh, and so we work with the Somerville Food Security Coalition mm-hmm. um, to, to meet those goals they were our partner on the food assessment, mm-hmm. and we um, meet monthly to try and determine, you know, what are our next steps here. So we've got uh, our food action plan, and piece by piece we're trying to tackle that to make sure that everyone from high to low food security has um, has what they need in Somerville and is able to actually access the resources. That's fantastic. And, and the um, Somerville Food Security Coalition is sort of the movers and shakers, right, of the food community in Somerville, people working on tackling issues of, of food insecurity, correct? Definitely, definitely. And I think one thing that's so great, among many things, that's so great about the Food Security Coalition is they really get at that interdisciplinary nature as well. And so right. we've got, you know, members who come from the different um food pantries and emergency food resource uh, organizations as well as um, organizations who represent potential constituents um, and all other aspects of the system. So all sorts of nonprofits and um, uh, great organizations that can help connect people to the right resources. Fantastic. Um, So we have one final question. um, And... We, yeah, I've really, we've really enjoyed talking to you so far. You're giving such rich answers yeah. to our questions. Really? <laughs> and it's, it's exciting to hear about all the stuff going on in our and your community. Yeah. So. Um, so our last question for you is, do you or does Shape Up have anything extra that you want to share with our listeners, um, new programs that you'd like to promote, or sort of hopes and goals for the future of Shape Up Somerville? Sure. Um, I always know that I'm going to forget something, so I'll I'll always remind people to check out our website because we have a lot of different opportunities on there. And again, it's not just what we run because we we only do a couple of different uh, programming options, but we want to be able to link everyone to um, the different resources that are available on our community. So you can definitely find a wealth of um, connections on our website. So I encourage you to check that out. And I'll also say that um, the the work that we're doing here in Somerville, there's also a ton of great work happening all around the greater Boston area. Um, there's a grant program called Mass in Motion that brings communities together to work on these very issues. Um, and, you know, we, outside of that also, are just trying to stay connected. Um, and so we we meet with 
other communities that are doing similar work um, and try and see how we can work together across our borders. Um, because life doesn't end at the Somerville border as much as I think it might sometimes. Uh, it really doesn't. And so, um, you know, in our food assessment, we were putting in all our Somerville stores. And we were like, well, like, just because a grocery store is across, is just barely across the border in Cambridge doesn't mean it's not getting used by some of the residents, right? And so we really have to expand this, all this work regionally. And that's one thing that has been really exciting about working here at Shape Up is connecting as well with all of our neighboring communities to figure out how can we come together as a region and improve for all of our residents. So I always think that's a nice um, and important option to note that we're all we're all trying to do this together. That's amazing. Well, thank you again so much, Erica, for speaking with us. Um, thank you so and much. Thank you. Good luck with your first week at the market. I hope that it Thanks. is. Thanks. I'm sure it will. And thank you so much. Yeah. Take care, Erica. Great to talk to you guys. Thanks. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hello? Listeners, welcome back. Um, for this segment, we are talking to Charlotte Mondale, also a student at Tufts. Charlotte, would you like to share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, um, I'm Charlotte Mondale. Thank you for having me. I am a rising senior at Tufts, and I'm studying English literature and food systems. Excellent. Awesome. So, Charlotte, um, we were wondering... Uh, at the Ocean River Institute, 
I know you've had a really cool last semester, um, and I was wondering if you could have a little summary on what you've done this last last school semester. Sure. Yeah, I had a really incredible experience. I did a study abroad program titled Rethinking Food Security, and it was focusing on people, agriculture, and politics. And it was a traveling program, so I spent about five months going between um, Northern California and the Oakland area to Quito in Ecuador to the long way in Malawi and then in Rome and Torino in Italy. Um, and each place I was in sort of had a different focus, but it was really interesting because with the topic like food, you could literally go anywhere in the entire world, but um, I really feel like the places we went had something really unique to bring to our educations. Um, so it was like a kind of brief overview. In Northern California, we focused a lot on food justice and um, activism around food. Uh, and then in Quito and Ecuador generally, we talked about um, the role of colonialism in shaping ex-post-colonial states and also the interaction of indigenous food cultures and uh, like modern non-indigenous food cultures, which was super fascinating. And then Malawi was pretty heavily focused on policy and agriculture. We spent a lot of time talking to smallholder farmers. Um, while also learning about the policies that affect their growing process. So pretty, um, we learned a lot about seed policy, for example, which was not something I had really ever thought about or talked about before, but it's something that I'm mm -hmm. really interested in now. And then Italy was, Rome was a very intense week of visiting the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is run by the UN, um, which was incredible to see the global global governance structure that was dictating a lot of the things we had seen in the past three countries. Um, and also, we spent a lot of time talking about the culture of food and the way that it's embedded into identity and history. I mean, everywhere we went, I was incredibly proud of the food. Um, Italy probably just talked about it the most, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was my study abroad. Wow, oh. that is such a cool program. Yeah. Um, Charlotte, you mentioned the concept of food justice. Would you mind explaining just in your own words to our listeners what that means? We, we've been talking a little bit about the different terms around food security on this program. So what does mm -hmm. food justice mean to you? So food justice for me is tied up, like, the, the terms food justice, food security, and food sovereignty are often thrown around in somewhat similar contexts. But um, I spent a lot of time trying to understand the differences between those terms. Um, food security I came to understand as a more um, administrative term to mean literal access to food and usually that encompasses frequency and nutritional value and um, cultural cultural appropriate, uh, appropriateness, um, like more advanced versions of food security. Um, food sovereignty is a term coined by the Vietnamese movement in like the 1960s um, and it, that refers to the concept of people who are a part of the food chain and the producers and the consumers and the farmers and everyone involved in food production and consumption should have a say in how and what they eat. And so that is, goes a little bit beyond food security and into the idea of empowerment. Mm -hmm. And then food justice has also a lot to do with that. Um, and it's particularly relevant in the United States where um, racial and class structures are talked about more and are very prevalent in the way that uh, people get access to food and what kind of food they get access to, and that affects diet, which affects health and affects mental health. And mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, sorry, that was a long answer. But no, that's perfect. Yes, and that's so on touch with what we've been talking about earlier. So we previously just had a call uh, with the coordinator for Shape Up Somerville, who oh, runs cool. the the mobile farmer's market. So that kind mm -hmm. of, yeah, touches upon the food security as well as, as you were talking about, she briefly mentioned, like, um, 
the cultural sensitivity and how <laughs> like they recently have like this particular greens that's really popular with Jamaican people and it's able to be afforded through like these kind of um, political and subsidized acts. So yeah, that's yeah, it's, it's really actually interesting because something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about since then is trying to determine what the food that is native to the region that I am in and what is cultural appropriate to me and my mm-hmm. background. And it's, it's like shocking to think about what minuscule per- percentage of what I'm eating is from where I am and yeah. is like native to, to the land that I am on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just, it's a really interesting thing to think about. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Cause when I went abroad, I also did a traveling country or traveling mm-hmm. program to three different countries. And something that was such a reoccurring theme was like, Oh, I miss America. You can eat anything there. Like you can right. And yes, part of that is the mixing pot, but at the same time, all of this is like imported versus, you know, mm-hmm. like even corn itself is now so altered from its, mm-hmm. you know, right. I don't know. Yeah. That's a super interesting concept that, yeah. Thought about. Yeah. Um, Charlotte, were you able to identify any foods that you eat currently that are native to the land, either that you were born on? <laughs> how, how was that expedition for you? What did you find? Well, I will say that the, the land that I'm, I, I personally have a hard time identifying my home and like where that, what that means to me as someone who's like moved around a lot throughout my life. Mm-hmm. Where I am right now, like, I don't, I honestly really don't know because I was looking, I tried to do a, like a breakdown of what I'm eating and it's, the, the main thing that struck me when I did that was how much corn I eat because it's in everything. Yeah. <laughs> Every single thing that I eat. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. In, in its various forms. Not, I'm not eating corn on the cob every day, but I sometimes do have a lot of corn syrup in ways, in places that I wasn't expecting, which is not native to where I currently am. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting because it, it's also, just to throw this in here, in here um, that is Malawi's biggest um, food export. And mm-hmm. they every single, almost every single person I met there, and I'm really not exaggerating, said that there is no meal without, if, if there's no corn involved. They have, <laughs> like, all of their, every single meal incorporates corn in some capacity, which is fascinating. And they were so blown away by the fact that we also have corn, and it looks different, um, mm-hmm. but and tastes different, but it's not native to either of our places, but it uh, is so central to the culture. So mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, I do need to, I need to do more research on the things that are from where I currently am, but it's all that's all been totally complex. It's more complex by the ease of transportation now and the fact that like things can grow really well here that are not originally from here and things like yeah, that. Absolutely. And that kind of gets into the realm of like globalization and mm-hmm. in my program we talked a lot about how colonization affected like right. food systems like I don't know and for example, when I was in Vietnam, um, banh mi's are a classic, you know, the Vietnamese mm-hmm. sandwich. But uh, we didn't even consider the fact that, like, because of the French occupation in Vietnam, that's how these baguettes and croissants right. were introduced in the first place. And, you know, Vietnamese people assume that it's so central part of their yeah. uh, history and culture that, I don't know. I mean, obviously not speaking on behalf of all of them. But it's just so cool, little instances like that, how history mm-hmm. affects, you know, what modern food uh, entails, I guess. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, so I have another question because, again, we are an environmental conservation nonprofit, not mm-hmm. food, not a food system. Um, we were wondering, after your crazy experience all around the world, what interactions between the environment, such as land and water, and food systems stick out to you, especially in the face of climate change? It's an excellent question. <laughs> um, I think the biggest thing, uh, there are so many, um, like some small experiences that st- stood out to me were in Malawi. We talked a lot about the various um, pests that affect the crop, and that has such 
by the clock, I mean tobacco and corn, which are their two main exports, and the the, um, the ways that global warming and climate change are causing an influx in certain pests and mm-hmm. how that, it's just like a total chain reaction, but that causes more crop failure, which is really negative for the economy, and yeah. that has inspired a lot of um, work in GMOs and trying to find ways of making the plant stronger and resistant to these pests. And it was fascinating as someone who has like grown up in places where there are cars driving around everywhere with bumper stickers that say GMO with an extra bit. Like it's a, a totally it's a huge concept to put an X over. <laughs> like <laughs> there, it was a really. That really opened my eyes to the concept of genetic modification when it comes to preserving uh, an economy and preserving people's livelihoods um, and how that related to climate change. And also while I was there, it was fascinating to be living in a place with super limited electricity, no one drove cars anywhere, and yet the fluctuation in rainfall that so deeply affected their... um, production was almost entirely caused by climate change. And so it's just really yeah. nuts to think about the ways that I, like, I live my life here and how that is affecting people all over the world. Um, yeah. And just a lot of the people, a lot of people who, everyone who feels the effects of climate change are not contributing to it proportionally. Right. Um, was something that I also, and I saw that in Ecuador as well. And it's something that everybody knows about now, but obviously... Not everyone is contributing to it. That's right. capacity. Charlotte, did you notice that climate change was a large part of the discourse around food in all of the countries you visited, or was it more like people were talking about crop yields and sort of what what was accessible, but not so much the climate caused reason? I would say that it was yes, a hundred percent. Italy was probably the one place where it didn't come up quite as much. <laughs> um, but I mean, in the U.S., it's really hard to talk about anything but climate change or um, it's just related to everything and in um, Ecuador and Malawi because we spent so much time focusing on agriculture it was also pretty uh, hard to avoid talking about it not that anyone was trying to avoid it I just mean that it was it came up a lot and um, I one of the huge reasons I'm interested in food in general is because it's such an intrinsically personal thing but it also is contributing and affecting the the planet in such a significant way. And mm-hmm. I'm really interested in how, like, personal consumption choices can affect a much bigger system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is super cool. And also, you know, with climate change causing water shortages, that was something we really noticed in Morocco was that, um, mm-hmm. you know, with the concept of drip irrigation, and that depends on government subsidies, and there's been a water crisis in Morocco. Um, so it's just so cool how everything is so intertwined in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, just pure being able to water your crops to sell or to eat goes into, like, you know, uh, governmental policies as well as just global climate change. And as you talked about before, just the disproportionate amount of bearing the burden of climate change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, people here who are creating the problem aren't going to be, you know, faced with dilemmas other than maybe selling their beach house, you know? Like, right. <laughs> right. So, yeah, um, that is so great. Um, Charlotte, did you, um, I'm wondering just sort of about the contrast you kind of talked about um, in terms of how when you went to Rome and you went to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the U.S., mm-hmm. legislative and sort of like official versus being like going to visit more site site style visits um, in the countries that were more agriculturally oriented, like Ecuador and when you went to Malawi, do you feel like those two things were connected and harmonious or did, did you notice like a disconnect or that the language being used between the two sort of factions is a little different and how do you feel about that? It's a great question. It was something I talked about with my professors and the other students on my program a lot because the nature of the trip was that we were in Malawi one day and then literally 36 hours later we were sitting in the FAO mm-hmm. and that was incredibly jarring for a lot of reasons. Um, but it was it was really interesting to listen to 
affluent white Italian men talk about the place we had just been with a lot of authority in his voice and a lot of, and who had clearly had a lot of experience in this kind of field and had visited uh, these countries a lot and uh, very knowledgeable, but certainly not um, necessarily from that place. And mm-hmm. so that was really, we, we talked a lot about representation in global governance um, because it's, it's not necessarily feasible to imagine that one person from every country is going to be in every single global governance structure and representing mm-hmm. their, that country and making all the decisions on behalf of them because that's not ideal either. It was It just was definitely kind of alarming. <laughs> um, and I, I just, I left, I walked away with not a really clear feeling of whether or not I liked it or I, I was really impressed with how knowledgeable everyone was and super mm-hmm. careful with language and really respectful, but also certainly representing people that they are not and some people were better about acknowledging that than others, I would say. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that must have been a really jarring experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, in the middle of Italy. Um, so, we were, you know, we've talked about so much great stuff here, food sovereignty, food justice, you know, the socio-political systems of food policies. So, mm-hmm. I was wondering if any of our listeners are curious about learning more. I know you've been all over, and we talked about so much, but if you have any, you know, resources or articles or anything that really yeah. struck you and helped you, you know, learn more about this this whole thing, you know, we'd love to hear your recommendations. <laughs> um, great question. I am also would love to hear people's answers to it, <laughs> um, but I would recommend reading. I'll, like, just, just read so much. Um, I... Michael Pollan is honestly a great jumping off point. That's where a lot of people who are interested in food systems right now have begun because he's super readable and is Mm -hmm. an interesting person, super smart. Um, And then there are a lot of different ways you can go with that. Something that I uh, have really enjoyed reading um, as I got more interested in the food justice kind of thing was uh, Julian Ehrman, who actually Mm -hmm. is a... Professor at the Friedman School um, has written a lot of fascinating stuff on food racial justice, um, Mm -hmm. which is not something I had spent a lot of time thinking about before Mm -hmm. studying this in an academic capacity, but highly recommend his work. And um, Diet for a Small Planet is also one of the first books that Mm -hmm. ever came out about food systems, and Mm -hmm. Francis Moore-Lefay is based in... Cambridge, which is pretty cool, and I'm working with her this summer. Um, but that book was kind of groundbreaking in uh, talking and in the conversation of food availability and population. Um, mm-hmm. That that is huge. So those are some little things that there are, there's tons of stuff out there to to do yeah. and just to, you know talk to people about composting and growing your own food and shopping responsibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. a lot <laughs> that is absolutely great thank you so much for all of these recommendations and thank yeah. you for taking the time to talk about your amazing crazy experience it of sounds course. like you learned a lot and I definitely <laughs> would love to hear more later but yeah, thank you for joining us thank, you so, much, thank you so much for having me yeah, it was great to talk, talk yeah. to you have a great afternoon bye Fantastic. Um, so we're wrapping up our food podcast right now. We loved having the different perspectives from Erica and then from Charlotte, sort of a local perspective and what's going on in the Boston area, and then also hearing from her expedition around the world, talking about food stuff. And frankly, we could talk about food all day. Um, yeah, it was just so cool to hear how some of there's some of the same problems, you know, that are happening here in Somerville that are happening all across the globe. So it was really interesting to hear the connections to the environment, too, and how water and climate change is obviously something that affects this system really, really greatly. Absolutely. Um, and something also that everyone can connect to, you know, we all and most of us are lucky enough to eat most days and or every day. And um, to that effect is a way that you can sort of touch base with how you're affecting the environment personally. Um, and so whatever ways you can um, 
know, keep thinking about it to all of our listeners. And thank you so much for listening. That's all. Thanks. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org.